You're listening to Station F, the podcast. From the world's largest startup campus in Paris. This is Station F, the podcast, and I'm your host, Roxanne Varza. This week, we're going to deep dive into what makes a great founder with the co-founders of Entrepreneur First, Matt Clifford and Alice Bentink. They have built an incredible program, actually the only program at Station F where you can show up without a team and without an idea. They have essentially flipped conventional wisdom on its head and are building some of the most incredible deep tech companies we know today. The program is also currently open for applications for anyone who wants to apply to join in April. Matt and Alice, it's great to have you with us. It's great to be here. Thank you for having us. Wonderful. Well, I have to say, um, your model just blows my mind. And I have to, I have to kind of frame it a little bit for our audience who might not necessarily be familiar with it. I feel like it's anti everything that VCs tell us. So you're essentially investing in people who have no product, no traction, have never potentially even met before. Um, I'm just wondering, like, is, this is completely counterintuitive. How did you even come up with this idea, Matt? Well, I think we, you know, we start from the premise that the world is missing out on some of its best founders. You know, so in in Paris or in London, uh, yeah, I mean, startups are like now a growing thing, but they're still not mainstream. You know, like they're still uh, a kind of weird choice. And, you know, I think our starting point, you know, when, when we started working together nine years ago was that too many of our friends, uh, you know, were choosing careers, not because they were passionate about what they were doing, but because it was just what everyone else was doing. And at London at the time, it was like, you know, banking, consulting, law, there's nothing wrong with those career paths. But, you know, I think at the time, even when you looked over to Silicon Valley, where starting a startup had become almost like a default option for the most ambitious people, it felt to us like, that spirit was missing in Europe. And so, you know, our starting point was, well, it would be great to get more of the most talented and ambitious people to start companies. But how do you do that? And, you know, exactly as you say, I think the challenging part of that for us and what we've spent the time since uh, refining into a product was how can you um, back individuals before they have a company? Because I think that's what it takes. If you wait for them to start a company, they just won't start a company. They're going to go, you know, become a partner at Goldman Sachs or whatever. And so, you know, we developed this um, methodology, we call it talent investing, um, to to overcome that barrier and to basically allow us to back individuals at the earliest possible stage. I love it. I'm, I still just like boggles my mind. I imagine so many VCs, when they hear about it, they just must get so uncomfortable. Um, but I'm wondering, so Obviously, we're looking at talent and people who are coming from a variety of different backgrounds, but what specific kind of signals and criteria are you looking for when you're identifying these people, Alice? Yeah, sure. I mean, as you can imagine, over the last almost decade that we've been going, we've worked with thousands and thousands of people across um, both Europe and Asia uh, and now have a really good sense of what are the indicators that somebody could be a good uh, a good founder. And really here, what we're looking for is potential. You know, we're, we're not necessarily looking for individuals who have already built and exited billion dollar companies. You know, they, they know how to solve these problems for themselves already. What we're, um, the kind of people that we like to work with and the kind of people we're going after are those that are often reasonably near the beginning of their 
uh, career. Um, they often have this kind of frustration. Uh, they are frustrated by the career uh, options that are put in front of them. They're frustrated by how they have to work. They often feel that um, their potential isn't being realized in the career path that, that they're going down. And so I suppose there are sort of four main things that we look for, some of which I, I think are um, intuitive and some I think are, are counterintuitive. Um, so the, the four big things we look for is we like really smart people. This doesn't mean you need to have excelled academically. Um, you just need to be a really, really good problem solver. Because if you think about what it means to be a founder, largely being a founder on a day-to-day -day basis is solving problems, problem after problem after problem. Um, and so you need to be super smart to be able to, uh, to, to kind of process that and process that as fast as possible. At EF, we like people who, who can bring a skill. Um, and so often many of the individuals we work with do um, have a technical background uh, of, of kind of a varying degree. Um, so maybe in computer science or it might be um, uh, maths or physics um, or it might be uh, more and more now we're, we're seeing people come to us with, with um, biotech backgrounds. Um, or it might be that actually they've just kind of hacked things together in their bedroom for the last couple of years um, and a, a really sort of a, a kind of a, a doer, if you like. Um, and then the kind of behaviours that we look for, we like individuals that challenge convention, who have made surprising or weird decisions in their uh, in their career path to date or while they were uh, at university, if they went to university. Um, we like individuals that are leaders who have this kind of innate ability to get people to follow them, um, you know, even if they're walking off the edge of a cliff, potentially. Uh, and finally, I suppose we like people who have this immense drive to achieve who just are obsessed with achieving and winning um, uh, in a variety of different fields. You know, I was interviewing someone once who had, you know, not only been um, part of the uh, uh, Olympic training squad when he was a teenager, um, but then when he'd become injured and that hadn't worked, he was top of his year in physics at one of the world's best universities. And he had then um, developed a uh, electronic dance music track that was then sampled by one of the world's best um, EDM musicians. So, you know, whatever he was doing, he just had to achieve, had to achieve. Um, and really, that's what we see from, from the, uh, the, the individuals that, that do best at EF. I find that fascinating. So when, when you started and you kind of said, we're looking for people, you know, who have potential, I said, well, you know, I think everybody that we know, we like to think of them as having potential, but kind of as you got into the real nitty gritty of it, I think it kind of really paints a perfect example of somebody who's just really, you know, passionate about something, has a certain skill set. Um, I love this element about needing to achieve, but how do you actually evaluate um, these these people and where where are you find them because as you as you or as Matt mentioned actually earlier these people are not spontaneously maybe thinking oh I'll go be a founder and I think the description that you gave a founder was perfect because not everyone wakes up thinking I want to solve a bunch of problems today um, so Matt how how are you actually assessing these people yeah I think there's two parts to that and and this is really important to the EF model uh, something that Alice already touched on is you know we, we're pretty suspicious of the ability of credentials on their own, you know, someone's CV or resume to tell the story about who they are. And so what we what we really care about is like, what can they demonstrate that they can do, not just, you know, kind of fill in on an application form. Now, the reason I say that is we do have an application form and we take it very seriously. Um, and it's a big part of our filter. We, um, we evaluate all the criteria that uh, Alice mentioned. You know, we're sort of looking for examples of, you know, times when people have, uh, 
just taken a maybe a non-conventional approach or done something that's kind of way beyond what might have been expected of them. But, you know, the key is our evaluation process doesn't stop at the point that we make an offer. One of the things that I think is very special about EF is that people, when they join us, then spend three months working with us, with our teams, uh, in person, in the uh, in the pre-COVID days, increasingly um, you know, uh, remote, but, but sort of very closely with our teams, and to find a co-founder to develop an idea. And actually, by the time we come to invest, which is um, uh, in the company that they create, as opposed to giving them a stipend, which is what we do for everyone, by the time we come to invest, the thing we're most interested in is productivity. You know, they've had three months. What have they got done? And I think this is where, um, you know, one of the things we firmly believe um, comes to the fore, which is, you know, what you can actually demonstrate beats your CV. You know, we'd much rather that you dropped out of high school, but in three months can speak to, you know, a thousand customers when your peers are, you know, sort of struggling to get responses to their cold emails. We'd much rather that person than someone who, you know, has, uh, you know, a badge from, Harvard University or whatever. So, you know, the way we think about what we do is it's really about giving exceptional people an opportunity to demonstrate um, what they're actually capable of rather than just relying on, you know, as as Alice said, you know, um, years of experience. And and that's why we're so obsessed with potential, because we're really saying that, you know, the absolute ideal person for, for EF is someone whose CV cannot tell their whole story. So they're probably going to be undervalued by traditional employers who look at their CV. But because of the approach we take where we actually work with these people once we've made them an offer, we're able to like fully value what they're capable of. And for us, you know, I think that's the, the essence of, of entrepreneurship is, is doing rather than just um, showing. I love that. One of my favorite questions on our application form to Matt's point is, um, is there anything else that you want to tell us? Uh, and often this is the the piece of the application form that tells me the most about the individual. You know, what do they choose to tell you about what they've achieved or done or the weird or strange things about themselves that, that might be interesting? Um, and so I suppose that question, then uh, the other question that's really indicative for us is, you know, what have you achieved, done and um, completed that your peers would not be able to do or wouldn't have uh, wouldn't have been successful at? And so this idea of trying to find individuals who, relative to their peer group, relative to people at the same age, stage, level of experience as them, have completely outperformed. Um, and I think that's, again, where we can really just hone in on potential because we're looking for that, you know, the top 1% in any particular experience level. Perfect. I, I find that fascinating. And I think another aspect of your program that just kind of boggles my mind is that you're actually putting complete strangers together in many cases, and they're building companies. And this is something that I think a majority of investors, you know, they would shy away from um, two random people coming together, building something, but they've never worked together before. So how are you pushing them and kind of getting them to to a place where they're actually a, a, a real team and they're not just two strangers in a room in a project together? Matt. I think this is, again, where, you know, this sort of guiding philosophy of like seeing what people do rather than trying to, um, you know, analyze uh, on paper uh, guides us really well in that the the way we think about team building at EF is not that we, you know, I wish we had some sort of algorithm that would tell us, oh, you know, John should work with with Sally or, or whatever. It's sadly not like that. Instead, we we don't say we know who should work well together. What we say is, just try working with someone and see what you're able to achieve. And our mantra is that a productive team is a good team. 
So the way we think about it is that in the wild, if you like, um, when people normally co-found with you know with friends or colleagues or acquaintances, um, you know one of the things that's weird about that or hard about that is that the bar to getting started is really high. The social friction of saying, will you start something with me is really high. Um, but that also means that if it's not working, the social friction to saying, oh, this is not working, we shouldn't work together is also really high. EF tries to reverse both those things. So within the pool of, say, 50 people um, for EF Paris uh, that we're working with, the mantra or the, like, the social norm that we try and create is your bar to getting into a team should be very low. If you think that it might work working with one of these people, try it. And then very quickly, be willing to step out of that if it isn't working. You know, within 48 hours, you should really, at least at an initial level, know whether your um, productivity is is enough to, to sort of drive you forward. Are you, are you being your best self? Are you, are you achieving maximum output? And so our methodology is less about analysis of, uh, of teams and more saying, what can they get done? Alice actually has a really great analogy, which I'll, I'll let her pick up, as we, you know, about like, this point you made about conventional wisdom. I think you're right that VCs originally, I think this was the part of the model they were most freaked out by and that most went against conventional wisdom was that, you know, it sort of felt like um, speed dating in a, in a world that should be about marriage. But Alice, I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about how mm. uh, your framing of that. Sure. Well, I think this is, you know, it's funny um, hearing you say complete strangers because you're right that they are complete strangers. Um, but actually, you know, uh, couple of years ago I remember a VC coming in to meet the teams and um he said oh so you, you take teams now I was like no 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 it's they still were complete strangers to um you know six months ago but the the depth of the bonds that we can build in a very very short space of time mean that being complete strangers six months ago doesn't matter I think there's a really nice analogy here with online dating where um you know reasonably recently online dating has become the default way to find not just a lover but your life partner um you know it's overtaken um finding uh, people at work parties friends of friends um religious gatherings um and i think there's a, a real analogy here that what online dating did was it allowed individuals who were in the market who were actively seeking out um a partner it gave them a very quick and easy way to test out other individuals um, and the opportunity cost of trying out one individual was very low because it actually wasn't that hard to find another uh, individual to test. Um, and really, that's kind of what we've done at EF, where you have this pool, as Matt was saying, of 50 committed individuals who have quit their jobs, who are ready to found a startup right now. So you have the ability to test a potential co-founder. And then if it doesn't work, instead of thinking, oh, well, I've got to kind of try and make it work, you can break up from that team and find another person to try and, uh, and, and test and iterate with. So yes, I think we did um, turn a bunch of uh, kind of conventional VC wisdom on its head here. But actually, to me now, the process seems very obvious. Um, it feels obviously better than finding a co-founder in the wild because you have this screened, committed pool of highly um, uh, intelligent, highly skilled, um, high founder potential individuals who are ready to co-found right now. Um, and so, yes, you do start as complete strangers, but I think as anyone knows who has tried to start a startup, the process of trying to start a startup is so hard um, that it can be a very, very bonding process very quickly. Uh, so we end up building these very robust teams and, you know, post-funding, we see very, very few breakups. Yes, and I, I imagine that there are naturally teams that 
that meet or people who maybe individuals that also go through the program and they just decide even if the, the project is working and the team is working that maybe this isn't for them. Um, what have you actually noticed in terms of people who maybe change their minds? What what can be said about actually um, the, the elements that maybe people should be aware of if they're looking to become a founder, if they're looking to get into a co-founder relationship, what, what maybe they should be paying attention to to know that it's really for them? Yeah, so I think one of the, one of the key things here, um, as Matt was saying, was this idea that first you need to test an individual. Um, and so if you're getting into a team, you need to have an agreed framework to test each other as co-founders. You're not just testing the idea, you're also testing each other explicitly as co-founders. And so what we encourage teams to do is 48-hour sprints, where, you know, after that 48 hours, you're giving each other feedback um, and you're explicitly deciding whether to continue or not. Um, I think one of the, the challenges is um, that if you're doing this in the wild rather than at Entrepreneur First, um, if you do choose to break up, often there is a reasonable cost to finding another co-founder. It can take a significant amount of time. Um, but I suppose one of the key things with the EF process is we do have lots of breakups, um, there, but there is an eight-week period where you can experiment with co-founders. Um, but after eight weeks, and 80% of the people that join us do get into a team within that eight weeks. Um, after those eight weeks, you're basically making a decision whether to commit to that uh, co-founder and to commit to founding a startup or not. Uh, and actually, we find that a really useful forcing mechanism. So if there are individuals who suddenly realize that actually this is really hard, um, it's not for me. And I suppose we're very, very keen um, to emphasize not everyone should be a founder. Um, it's probably the hardest career path that you can take, uh, both in terms of what you need to achieve, but the emotional side of it as well. You know, it's the opposite of a lifestyle choice. Um, it's incredibly, incredibly hard on a kind of daily and, and yearly basis. Um, and so we have that kind of testing period where people can test out being a founder, test other co-founders, um, and then make that, uh, we have that forcing point where they can decide whether to be a founder or not, um, which is why we see so few breakups after that uh, After that period. Wonderful. And I think it's actually, it's, it happens in such a kind of condensed time frame that sometimes almost when you're pushed to make a decision, probably you're much better at making a gut decision and really knowing where you stand than if you had tons of time to, to think it through. Um, another question that I have is just because I know EF has just expanded globally so much um, over these last few years. I don't know how many countries are you currently in uh, at the moment? We're in six today. Six. Wonderful. So I'm also wondering, is this is founder kind of culture and the notion of what it is to be a founder and who makes a good founder, have you found that to be relatively similar in all the countries that you're currently in? Or are there some local differences that you've also picked up on? That's a great question. Um, it's something we talk about a lot at EF. And, and I think there are sort of like two somewhat different answers to it. So I think the first thing is that um, a lot of people, uh, a lot of people expect the differences to be bigger than than they are. So it's a very common thing when we announce that we're going to a new country is that someone will say to us, and you know, maybe they're just making conversation, but you know, they'll make some sort of sweeping announce uh, pronouncement about the country. So they'll say, oh, you know, it'll be very hard in Singapore because Singapore is very conservative, or you know, um, or it'll be difficult in Paris because Paris has a real um, technocratic uh, education system. It's like, well, 
we're not trying to find the median representative of the country that we're entering. In fact, one of the cool things about entrepreneurs is they're outliers, almost always. You know, they're people that don't fit in. Um, they're people that have always been a little dissatisfied with the status quo, who have found it constraining, who have felt that there has to be something more. And so, you know, I suppose one answer to your question is actually we believe that entrepreneurs have more in common with each other around the world than they often do with, um, you know, their um, their countrymen and women in the in the, in in their um, in the place they grew up. So that's one way of thinking about it. I suppose the other way, which is slightly different, is I do think that the alternatives to entrepreneurship for ambitious people do differ a lot around the world. So. Um, you know, I already mentioned, you know, it felt for a long time in the UK that, you know, the default path for ambitious people that weren't sure what they wanted to do um, was to go into the financial services industry. And, you know, nothing wrong with that. But, you know, it means that the opportunity cost of starting a company is very high. And um, that's one of the things that we had to address in London as we were sort of pitching uh, being a founder. In Singapore, for example, it's very different. You know, historically, at least for um, native Singaporeans, one of the most prestigious uh, career paths is government. Um, and, you know, this is like a very um, well-trodden path for ambitious people there. Obviously, that means the pitch for why be a founder has to be slightly different. Uh, you know, you're less competing on financial upside and maybe more on, on, on impact, for example. And so I think we have had to tailor our message around the world as, you know, kind of who are we competing against when it comes to career paths? But I think those core um, feelings of, of wanting a career that is unbounded, that is you know unconstrained by having to climb a ladder or make your boss look good, I think those things are very constant everywhere. I find that fascinating about how the messaging has to kind of change um, given the different markets. And I'm also wondering, are there other elements that maybe from an EF perspective, you guys have had to rethink a little bit in some of these different markets? Or globally, is the program really pretty much standard? One of the really exciting things for us has been seeing how, you know, to Matt's point about we're not looking for the median um, individual from a particular country. We're looking for these exceptional and often quite unusual individuals. And it does seem like around the world that is that's reasonably uh, consistent. Um, and so the, the product that we deliver to them in all locations is, is very similar. And I suppose one of the biggest surprises for us is that the dynamics around building teams despite operating in lots of different cultures, have remained very consistent. Um, and I suppose one of, the, one of the reflections here is that actually in all of our locations, we do work with lots of individuals who weren't born in that country. Um, so either have come over for education um, or for employment. Uh, and these individuals who often have a pretty high risk appetite uh, seem to do really, really well on EF. So in any one of our particular locations, you get such a diverse mix of nationalities and backgrounds um, that, it, you know, it makes EF such an incredibly exciting place to be. But it also means that the uh, differences between locations are, are very small because you do have such an international mix in all of our locations. So I'm, I'm wondering now, and I'm thinking you guys have probably heard this before, um, but it sounds like you're working with just some of the most incredibly brilliant people, some of the best, you know, um, universities and probably, you know, just incredible talent. But it's, it also I think there's probably a number of brand names that go with it, maybe some certain types of diplomas. Maybe it's a lot of people who have, you know, got PhDs and, you know, have done all kinds of research. Um, what does this say about diversity? How are you guys actually also reaching out to people who maybe don't have that background and integrating them to this model? Or does this model not necessarily cater to them? 
Yeah, I think there's a really, uh, and there's a lot we can say about that. So maybe we can both um, uh, jump in. But I, I think like to try and frame that a bit from an EF perspective, I, I think there's a basic mistake that a lot of people make about EF, which is that they say, oh, wow, you know, we look at these cohorts of individuals and, you know, they all, I'm talking about London now, you know, they all went to Oxford and Cambridge or, you know, they all did have this background or that background. And, you know, they sort of take from that that Entrepreneur First itself cares about those badges. Actually, I think that's a mistake and it's a, it's a sort of conceptual mistake. Our belief is actually that the world is full of talented and ambitious people who are forced by society to make choices at different stages of their life. And in a lot of cultures, um, there is a path laid out for ambitious people from a very young age. It's like, you know, take this exam to get good grades, to be allowed to go to this school, to take this exam, to get good grades, to be allowed to take this exam and et cetera, et cetera. And so I think people confuse the fact that a lot of people that we work with have taken those well-worn paths because it's what they were told to do with society. And what we've done effectively, I, I don't want to be, um, don't exaggerate, but you know, in a way we sort of like pulled them off that path. I would say rescued them from it, but maybe I'm biased. Um, I think they confuse that fact with the idea that we actually care about those badges. I think for for Alice and for me and you know for our whole team, we would just as much like to find um, a person who's super talented and ambitious who just never took those paths, who was contrarian from day one and chose not to go down that route. And in fact, we found many many people like that. Um, but you know, I think in any society um, like the UK, like France, which sort of funnels people at a young age down these paths, it's it's sort of hard to escape them. And so, a big part of our job, we think, is to pull people out of those traditional career paths. But I think if you look at our cohorts, you know, we fund people who dropped out of university. We fund people who never went to university. Um, you know, we the youngest person I think we've ever funded was was 18. I think the oldest was 67. There is no like um, type that people have to conform to at EF. Um, but it is true that we're obviously selecting on, on ambition. So it's no surprise that a lot of those people have tried to search ways to fulfill that ambition um, through traditional means, with traditional institutions. But that's not something we care about in its own right. Um, but maybe, I mean, Alice, maybe you, you, you'd want to speak more broadly about how we're thinking right now about diversity here. Yeah, one of the one of the key parts of our selection criteria is we want to know what you've achieved relative to your peer group. Um, and the reason why this matters is that, you know, if you have been to one of the top um, universities, we want to know what you've done, that your peer group, who are also high performing individuals at that top university, um, wouldn't have been able to do or wouldn't have uh, taken the risk to do. And so really, you know, as Matt was saying, this enables us to look at individuals who didn't go to university, who did, who came from a broad range of backgrounds and to really understand, you know, what have they done that is exceptional compared to other people, uh, people like them. Um, so, you know, we actively try to make sure that the um, uh, diversity within any of our locations reflects the kind of city that we're, we're based in. Um, I think anyone who um, has an active in interest in diversity uh, will never really say that um, this is a either easy or b um, something that you can ever really feel you have won or completed. Um, you know, hands up, we still have a huge amount of work to do on diversity, uh, and particularly as a company that works in tech um, and does work with a lot of technical individuals, um, we know that there are significant barriers for underrepresented groups, whether it be women or different um, uh, ethnicities, uh, to, to joining the world of tech. Um, and so one of the key things we do is we invest heavily in outreach to make sure that those individuals know that being a founder is not just a um, aspirational career path, but it's a possible career path. 
um, and the EF is a is the institution that can help make it possible for them. You know, one of the key things that we introduced and um, that really uh, supported um, and changed the diversity of the uh, individuals that were coming to EF and that could even access venture capital was saying, "Hey, we're going to pay you." To do this, you know, we're going to give you a stipend to have the opportunity to experiment um, with being a, a founder. This is something that had never, ever been uh, done before in a systematic and scalable way. Um, and when we brought that in, we really saw the socioeconomic diversity change of the individuals who were uh, who were joining us. So I think for anyone who is an investor in tech, um, you need to have a constant eye on diversity um, actively investing in different initiatives to ensure that you are bringing in a, as diverse a pool of candidates as possible. Um, but I suppose just to reassure anyone who's thinking about joining TEF, you know, we want to know about your performance relative to peers um, and we want to compare you to your peer group. So, you know, if you are from that top university, uh, you need to have done something pretty incredible to stand out from your peers. Um, and you might have done something slightly different uh, if maybe you didn't go to university and took a different path. Yeah, I can definitely see why a lot of people might confuse, for example, those those badges that Matt mentioned. Um, and I think it's great that actually even within those kind of subgroups, you're really looking at kind of identifying essentially the best and the top talent. Um, I want to finish on uh, a topic that's kind of a little bit what makes really the best teams and the best founders that you guys have worked with. I think we started with how do you identify people that would make potential founders? What is the experience of creating those teams look like? And now what, what does it look like when they're actually successful? What do you see that's different in these teams than maybe some of the others? Matt, I'll start with you. Yeah, I, th I think there's, uh, there's quite a few things that turn out to be really good predictors really early on. So, you know, one of the weird things about Entrepreneur First is, you know, we have a venture capital business model. We're investing in these people and then their companies, not just at seed, but pre-seed, you know, before months before we'll get any feedback from other VCs on, on you know, kind of how they're doing. And, and so I suppose one of the uh, one of the big questions that we ask ourselves is, is anything that happens in that really early period predictive of success or are you really playing the lottery? And I guess the good news for us and, our investors is it's really not a lottery. There's a lot that we can say based on six months of working with people about, you know, like what the very best teams look like. And I'll, I'll just try and pick out, um, you know, maybe just three things that we see very consistently in the very best teams. So one I've already touched on, which is just these people, these teams are so productive. Um, the amount that they can get done in a week is constantly surprising. Um, and I think that idea of surprising is really important. Um, you know, if I sit down with a team um, who are, you know, sort of literally in the first few weeks um, of working together, what, what I um, what I usually would ask them is like, what would a great week look like? What would this week look like if you, you know, were operating at peak performance? And we write that down. And then a week later, they come back and we see what have they got done. I think the um, the best teams just constantly beat even their own expectations of what good looks like. So that's the first thing. Um, second thing is, um, to, to borrow a phrase from, um, Reed Hoffman, our, 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 um, friend and investor, you know, they're, they're, they're infinite learners, you know, they, and they take you on their learning journey. I mean, it really is the case that startups are all about unknowns. If everything was known at the start, it wouldn't be a startup. It'd be an established business. The reason that stops have an opportunity at all is because they, um, you know, because they're resolving unknowns. And so you do need a team that is a just extraordinary uh, set of learners um, who can 
um, cope in ambiguity and, 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 and discover something true and, and, and real. And so just like, it's so amazing to sit down with a team that is compounding its learning so quickly and that can sort of make you a, a sort of outsider uh, get to grips with a new idea very, very quickly. That's the second thing. Um, and then the third thing I'd say is it, it is, if you think about what a startup's job is in the very earliest days, it's really to attract um, capital talent um, to them. You know, like no startup can be built by two people in the long run. Um, you know, you, even if you've got you know, deep customer insight and a, and a great product, if you can't attract um, great people to come and work with you and join your team, you're never going to succeed. And to do that, you typically need capital because if you don't have capital, how are you going to pay these great people? And so I would say um, the, the very best teams are extraordinary magnets for talent. People want to help them. Uh, people want to work with them. It's such a strong signal when we see people that we respect, who we know time is is scarce, um, stepping in to give a team time. I think it's just an indicator that they're going to be able to attract those resources that they're going to need to succeed. Wonderful. Alice, I'm sure you have something to add. One of the, the key things with these kind of exceptional teams is, is thinking about the balance in their co-founder pairing as well. Um, I think sometimes where we see things go wrong is where you have a co-founding team who are really great friends and they love hanging out together and they have all the same shared interests. Um, but actually when it comes down to, as Matt was saying, being productive and being those infinite learners, um, they, just, they just can't be productive. There's something about the dynamic that doesn't work. So the other dynamic that we see where um, it can cause issues is if you don't have a CEO in the company and you don't have a clear CTO, and so sometimes you'll have a company where you get two CEOs or you'll get two CTOs in a double CEO company. You just can't get stuff done. Um, if you're trying to build a tech company, one of the key things is you're able to um, test uh, and um, iterate very fast. Uh, and if you are building something that has defensible technology at its core, you have to have an exceptional CTO um, in-house. This is not something that you can kind of hire or outsource. Um, and then sometimes, you know, we have uh, companies where the, there just isn't a clear enough CEO. So maybe you have two CTOs working together where they both have very strong technical backgrounds, but there isn't necessarily somebody who is um, willing and able to take up the bar of being a CEO. And I think the CEO role is sometimes very misunderstood. It's seen as, you know, the ideas person or the um, sales person, um, whereas actually being a CEO is about building and crafting a business model. It's about understanding how to create and capture value um, in a new and unique way for the product that you're creating. Um, so it's about being commercial rather than about being a salesperson. Um, so often the teams that we see that don't work often have a misbalance or a, or a lack of balance in their co-founding team. Um, and as Matt was saying, you know, the dream teams are the ones where you have that balance, you have that productivity, you have that ability to be infinite learners. Um, and those are the teams that now we've been doing this for almost 10 years, you know, we've, we've seen these teams go through these journeys where during the program, when we were working with them, they were insanely productive. You know, they iterated through um, uh, different iterations of their product very quickly. Uh, and they've continued to do that and continue to be infinite learners the whole way through as they go through their series A, Bs and Cs. Um, you know, this is the amazing thing about being a founder. I think it's one of the few career paths in the world where you are constantly pushed to learn something new just at the moment where you feel comfortable running a 10 person team you're running a 50 person team then you're running a 100 person team or just when you feel comfortable raising a million dollars you're then raising 10 million dollars and then 20 million dollars 
And so I think, you know, the kind of people who do well as founders and the kind of teams that do well as founders are those that see that journey as something that is the most exciting thing they can do, not with their career, but with their life, because it is so all consuming. Um, and I definitely feel that personally. You know, I feel very lucky to have been um, a founder for almost the last decade, but it's unbelievably hard. But I think that's why I like it. Um, and I think that's why uh, the kind of individuals that, as Matt was saying, these kind of infinite learners, these infinite problem solvers who are just addicted to, to solving and building uh, and kind of creating um, that do so well. I find that a perfect point to end on. Um, you guys are definitely, I think it's no secret, you're definitely onto something um, in how to identify and even create amazing founders and companies. Um, and we're huge fans of your work here at Station F. So thank you so much for being here today. All right, everyone, thank you for joining us. If you like this episode, make sure to give us many, many stars. And if you have any feedback or if you want to suggest a topic or a speaker, uh, we'd love to hear from you on Twitter or by email at press at stationf.co. And finally, make sure to follow us and not miss out on our next podcast episodes. We're available on all your usual podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, and Google Podcasts. All right, see you soon.